Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. In this episode, we're going to move away from our usual deep dive, super wonk style on a single topic and step back for a little celebration. That's right. The Urban Institute is officially in the back half of its first century. Thanks, Stevie Wonder. So Urban celebrated its 50th birthday last month. And what better way to honor your first 50 years than to turn to thinking about your next 50 years? In fact, we held an event focused on that concept of next 50 to explore the big social questions of the next five decades and the role of research organizations like our own. The Changemakers Forum convened innovative leaders from diverse fields to explore what it would take to create a future in which everyone has a chance to thrive. In this episode, we're going to share some of the big takeaways from that event and hear from several of the participants. Urban Institute President Sarah Rosenwartel is going to help guide us through these takeaways, but let's start with the question of why we thought it was important to mark the moment in the first place. Here's Sarah. Occasions like this are important to give you a chance to sit back and reflect about sort of rededicating to purpose anew for the future. And so we said from the beginning that rather than celebrate our 50th anniversary, we wanted to launch Urban's Next 50. And so we had some resources, thanks to our friends at the City Foundation, that allowed us to give scholars a chance to go out and find people who were driving change and learn what they most needed to know in order to make a difference. Where's change coming from? Who's driving change? Who are the change makers? And What are the ideas that are being tested and tried, and how can we contribute to finding solutions more quickly? And so we took this occasion to not simply acknowledge and honor our past, but also to really begin the next chapter of us helping to tackle the big challenges the country's facing. And as we look to the next 50 years, there are plenty of major issues to confront. The challenges that we face today are as significant as any we've faced in our history. We have demographic change, technological change, climate change, and a global economy that is making the prospect of getting ahead for most families really difficult. And we're seeing that those forces not only are challenging economic mobility, but as we are being pulled further and further apart, those inequalities are hardening. And it's clear that these problems and the potential solutions cut across the country and require us to look to leadership in new places. One of the things we heard very powerfully during the conference was that power resides in much more distributed fashion around our society today. And it can be organized and mobilized to make change. And we need to make sure that we have means of including a lot of voices in the creation of new ideas and that people have more say, more mastery over the policies, the programs that are shaping their own lives. When Urban was created in 1968, we tended to think of the federal government as the primary actor to drive change at scale. In fact, 
Urban was created to help understand whether federal resources that were going to the war on poverty in the 60s were being used effectively and how they could be better spent. But in many ways, the federal government is no longer playing such a central role. As we reflect on the moment we're in today, we see a lot of dynamism and energy is happening in cities and towns and rural communities and even in state government around the country. And that change is coming from people also outside of government. More and more we see philanthropists or local businesses or people driving really creative, interesting nonprofits, social entrepreneurs. They're the ones who are trying and testing new ideas. And we wanted to make sure that we were really engaging deeply with those changemakers too. The federal government will always be important part of setting the policy context. But particularly now when we have a public that has lost some of its confidence in the federal government to drive change and a lot of paralysis here in Washington, it was an occasion for us to spend more time talking to people in all these other sectors and figuring out how we could be an accelerant to their efforts. So our next 50 Forum brought changemakers from those different sectors and areas of the country together to talk about how to address the challenges of our time. Several themes jumped out across the day. First and foremost was the fact that disparities rooted in race and ethnicity remain at the center of the major social issues our country will face in the next 50 years. One really important theme was the way in which racial equity or inequity appeared in almost every aspect of our conversation. When we look at the way society is changing, the labor market is changing, our communities are changing, our housing market is changing, criminal justice, in each of these dimensions, there's a powerful example of the way our history of racial discrimination and, and injustice is baked into our society, and that the challenge of disentangling race from opportunity is as present with us today as it was at our founding, even though it takes a very different form. Darren Walker is the president of the Ford Foundation, and he spoke about opportunity and advantages afforded to some, but not all. It's really, really important for us to not generalize but to understand the context and the context for vulnerable people historically, black people, brown people, immigrant people, low-income white people, is that they, their disadvantage is compounded. And the things that many middle-class white people, upper-income white people take for granted as not important are extraordinarily important for them. A really key area in which public and private leaders will have to confront some of these racial inequities is through technology. And a big part of our next 50 discussions focused on the intersection of technology, artificial intelligence, and discrimination. Here's Darren Walker again. Well, I would say for me, for my institution, for the Ford Foundation, which has a focus and a mission on justice in the world, we will have failed in this new digital era if the discrimination, prejudice, racism, and other forms of isms that we have in the analog world is simply replicated in the digital world. Sarah reflected on this connection between race and technology as well. The way that each of these major forces of change is affecting our society is worrying. It's troubling. 
we're worried about the way that artificial intelligence may bake into the algorithms that are being used to decide who may be given a chance at a particular job or a particular educational opportunity, that those algorithms may have in them some legacy from our history of discrimination. And we might actually harden that inequality. Vivian Ming is the executive chair and co-founder of Socos Labs. She warned the forum about how technology and specifically artificial intelligence might be used against certain groups of people. Current approach to artificial intelligence is fundamentally incompatible with civil rights. Right now, in the time we've been here, a huge percentage of you in the audience were passed over for a job, for a loan. Your kids were passed over for admission to university. For many of us, you may have gotten extra scrutiny from the police, and you weren't aware of any of it. If any of that was done because you were a woman or some sort of algorithmic redlining, how did you even know? You didn't. You can't take action against it because you weren't even a participant. It happened in a couple of milliseconds, and then it was done. If you didn't fit their model of the right person to hire, you don't get the job. And on that idea of AI feeding into employment decisions in the future, I talked with Darielli Rodriguez, director of the Economic Justice Project at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. She said many employers are already using artificial intelligence to screen potential candidates. It's worth paying very close attention to because whereas in the past, candidates would actively apply for a position, now a lot of uh, employers are using these technologies to passively analyze and assess candidates without individuals knowing whether or not they've been considered for a job and whether they've been passed over for a job and whether they were passed over because of some job-related qualification or because of a bias that was built into an algorithm. And so as more jobs become automated, as the wealth gap increases, as the income gap increases among people of color and women, it's just very important to ensure that best practices are in place to ensure that biases are not a part of these hiring and employment technologies and that they are really harnessed to increase equity. But it's important to remember that the tools themselves are not the problem. While artificial intelligence and other new technologies have the alarming potential to reinforce discriminatory practices, they also have the power to end them. In other words, those who hope to create an inclusive future must have technology fluency to shape how it's used. Here's Sarah again. Some cases, certainly uh, some of what we heard during the program about technology is scary. But we didn't want to just examine the problem. We really wanted to help find pathways forward. And what we also heard was that there are great opportunities for us to harness some of these forces for change for good. So we want to spend our analytic energy really focusing on that technology's default does not build in our historic bias, but instead that we use technology to find a solution that's going to make something better. And here's Darielli again on this potential. Ideally, the impact that um, these technologies are having are positive, right? They are ideally resulting in more diversity and more inclusion and in tackling barriers for underrepresented groups, particularly in sectors where they have historically been shut out like technology. It shouldn't just be that they implement the technologies and then just sort of let it be. So how do we find these solutions to make things better? 
Another theme of the forum was the importance of facts and evidence, and most of all, the need for actionable insights from research to help guide decisions. Research that's directly relevant to the questions that changemakers are asking. So one other takeaway I had was the degree to which some of our country's most innovative and creative changemakers really welcome, in fact, are desperate for the power that comes from evidence. So much of today's social entrepreneurs and others are off inventing new things. And sometimes it feels like a sort of traditional model of research takes too much time. But what we heard over and over again was an appetite to mine information, to find the things that are going to help them be successful. And these new data analytic tools that we have, new sources of information, have a great potential for us to much more quickly and rapidly put information in their hands. And the degree to which they are hungry for it rivals the appetite that Lyndon Johnson had in 1968 when he felt he was prosecuting a war on poverty without sufficient tools. I think we can arm today's changemakers with similar power to make a difference. Jose Cisneros has been treasurer for the city of San Francisco since 2004. He talked with us about the many ways he uses research to help the people in his city who are struggling. It helps us answer discrete questions by covering a lot of different factors and information points that are affecting the folks in our community. So whether it's about income, whether it's about credit scores, whether it's about you know financial habits, whether it's about uh, usage of, of financial products and services, whatever the topic is, we oftentimes find that we need a lot of different parameters to look at to kind of decide how would we how would we go at trying to create a program that might deliver success or even just send a message that could steer people towards success. Most importantly, and I think this is key, while the data that steers us to these folks is important, we really could use also some information about, well, what might help them? What, what has proven successful? So while we need to find out where's the harm, where are the failures, we'd also like to know where are the successes and what do those practices look like so we can translate good behaviors maybe to the people that haven't learned them yet to see if we can change the outcomes for the people that are, are experiencing failures and get them into the experience set that the people that are succeeding have. Jose said it's important for researchers and changemakers to embark on partnerships in which they learn, test, evaluate, and then replicate the best ideas. My other thought would be once we try that idea, that program, that, that intervention, stick with us and help us evaluate whether or not it made a difference. So I see this, I see this engagement as being very likely something that would be iterative. You know, come at us with the, 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 the data, the landscape, the knowledge about, you know, who we might be trying to reach and, you know, some of the ideas we might try or the actions and intercessions we might go in with. But then let's measure how that did. Let's see what kind of unintended consequences 
cropped up along the way, what things that we didn't expect were challenges turned out to be challenges, and how come we re- we achieved maybe some success, but not as much as we thought we might or hoped, and so then we might revise or or, or continue to change the intercession and then try it again and then measure it again and continue to iterate to see how do we get to the goal we're, we're shooting for and might it take a few tries to get there. Former North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp agreed that accessible research that is communicated well is vital to our democracy. I think it's really important that whatever research comes out in order for it to have legitimacy is and, and to have value, it has to have legitimacy and it has to be accurate and it can't be done through soundbite. And that's really one of the things that I couldn't stress enough, which is stop soundbites. Let's figure out how we're going to communicate pretty complicated kinds of issues in ways that will, in fact, educate and make the public better able to vote. I mean, I think it's it's not always what kind of research you're doing. It's how you present it. Ai-jin Poo is the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She talked about the nature of facts and emotional connections to data. To shape and elevate the debate, we need to think more about how factually consistent narratives, telling people's stories, sharing the experience of a community, can sit alongside our research findings and how they can validate each other. I've seen the role of facts and where it's effective and how it's effective and where it's limited. And where I think it's limited is that there's what's factually true and then there's what's emotionally true for people. And they're two different things. And they're both shaping our reality and our behaviors, Mm. our choices, consciously and unconsciously. And so we have to be really smart about that. Um, And so we have to have the facts and the data and the evidence and the arguments and all of that. And we also have to be really in touch with the human dimension that is not always rational, in fact, oftentimes not. The emotional lives of human beings as they go through the experience of life and how that is shaping choices and behaviors and practices. And and until we get really serious about that dimension Mm -hmm. of the world Mm -hmm. and how we're engaging with it and that dimension of Mm decision-making, we're going to be very constrained mm-hmm. in our impact. To Darielle Rodriguez, it's the mix of research and narrative that can be really impactful. I think that the combination of really robust, meaningful research and data coupled with the individual stories is powerful, particularly when you are pushing for policy advocacy. People always want to know the individual stories and how an issue impacts individual lives and by extension, families and communities. And so when I do see research with really great statistics and um, well-founded sort of data coupled with stories by individuals who can really highlight the impact that uh, an an invidious practice has had on their lives, uh, that's compelling. The, The individual stories are always compelling. And for an evidence-driven organization like Urban Institute, these are really important insights and will be critical to our mission and how we do our work in the next 50 years. 
One of the things I love to quote is maybe apocryphal, but supposedly Wayne Gretzky said, you know, good hockey players skate to where the puck is, great hockey players skate to where the puck is going to be. We need to work on answering the questions that decision makers are going to need to have and make sure that we present the information to them at point of decision in a way and in a form that's going to be helpful to them. And you don't do that sitting in your office guessing. You do that by starting the conversation with the decision makers or the communities and the communities that you want to help use the information to make their lives better. As always, we'll close with three takeaways. One, as we look to the future, racial injustice remains a huge challenge that we've yet to conquer. It's woven throughout systems and structures in our country, our housing market, our education and justice systems, and our access to opportunity. Two, one of the notable places we're seeing race and equity issues arise is in tech and artificial intelligence. Emerging technologies can reinforce bias when reviewing candidates for a job or educational opportunity but they also can be used to do the opposite, to identify bias and discriminatory practices in hiring and to find a solution that eliminates them. And three, what's the way forward? Well, we think it's through research that informs the work of change makers and works with them directly on the solutions that work best and finding ways to marry data and evidence with stories of real people that are emotionally true. So that's our show. A big thanks to our president, Sarah Rosenwartel, and to everyone who joined us to celebrate our birthday and talk about what's to come. If you want to learn more about Next 50, check out next50.urban.org to explore some of the really interesting questions that are animating our work over the next 50 years. And if you are in a giving mood, go to your podcast app or to iTunes and please leave us five stars. We really appreciate it. And it helps others to find the podcast. Huge thank you, as always, to the great Katie Smith, Kate Villarreal, Dave Connell, and our sound editor extraordinaire, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.